0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velur, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist. This series of podcasts discusses issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my four decades of covering the Asian continent. In this edition, we discuss Australia, which has followed a policy in recent decades of moving ever closer to Asia. From a strategic affairs perspective, these are momentous times for the continent-sized nation. The country has been an ally of the U.S.-led West for more than a century. In recent decades, a lot of its prosperity has come from trading and economic linkages with China. However, Ties with Beijing have soured lately, especially since the pandemic began. In 2021, Australia surprised the world when Canberra signed on to AUKUS, which is the short name for a group that links Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Many see AUKUS as its peer pointed at China, and this has been quite worrying to quite a few Australians. Southeast Asia as well is not entirely comfortable with AUKUS. To discuss AUKUS and other subjects, I'm privileged to have with me the Australian statesman, Mr. Bob Carr. Mr. Carr was a long serving Premier of New South Wales, Australia's most prosperous state, and he also was Foreign Minister to Prime Minister Julia Gillard. I first met Mr. Carr when he was visiting Singapore as Foreign Minister more than a decade ago, and I've had the good fortune to stay connected with him. In fact, On a recent holiday, I took along one of Mr. Carr's books, Diary of a Foreign Minister, and it made very good reading. And that's because Mr. Carr is a very perceptive person and has a deep sense of history, which he combines with an appreciation for the contemporary moment. Uh, Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Mr. Carr.
1: Very good to be with you, uh, Ravi. uh, My contacts with Singapore have always been very, very enjoyable.
0: Bob, it used to be said that Australia depends on the United States for security and China for prosperity. Do you think that dilemma has been resolved lately by your country?
1: No, I don't. I think in moving closer to America on security, we have exaggerated the response, the appropriate response to China's rise. My starting point is this. It's always good to share your assumptions. The rise of China is good for China and good for the world, good for the region. And it is not a threat to the Australian continent, the the, the Australian nation, which holds this vast continent. It is not a threat to Australia. That doesn't mean we have the same comfortable relationship on strategic issues with China that we have with the United States, with so much shared history. But I think a China panic in the last five years, has coloured Australian views of China and distorted our perceptions of uh, geostrategic matters in the region.
0: What would you say are the developments that caused what looks, at least from Singapore, like a very decisive shift by Canberra? I think it's been five years
1: in which China panic has flavoured the media. I think Australian some Australian government advisers and many of the American oriented think tanks in Australia and, and media groups have fed this exaggerated notion of, of China. And I think underpinning everything is this Australian fear of abandonment. The biggest factor in Australia's thinking about the world is that we are vulnerable. It has a small European-derived population in the southeastern corner of a vast continent with more populous Asian nations to our north. It's a uh, Australia's apprehensive about the threat that, that, that an Asian empire might one day represent to its security and the fear of abandonment has meant to Australians, Australian leaders have whipped over time. At historically, our links with the the British Empire and since the Second World War, our ties with the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if you read the Australian media and elsewhere as well, there are reports of uh, Chinese interference in government, uh, penetration of civil society groups, universities, and so on. Are these overstated? Are these overblown? Or is this something that any normal country of its size and influence would perhaps be doing on a regular basis anyway?
1: Well, I think when it comes to the soft power stakes and the influence stakes, China is a long way behind other nations in seeking to shape Australian foreign policy. In a sense, they're, they're, they're not even trying, compared with the US, compared with Israel, for example. We've got a, a sizable Chinese background community in Australia and they had a big impact on on politics in the last federal election when they, they swung against the Conservatives and behind Labour. But no one has ever said that reflects Chinese government influence on Australian politics. No one said that. There's been precisely no evidence of that. It was a, a community deciding that it's painfully uncomfortable with a Prime Minister and a Defence Minister who spoke about a a forthcoming war with China. They couldn't see a case uh, for this sort of rhetoric, and they were very uncomfortable with it. They changed their their voting patterns. It wasn't as a result of uh, a Chinese influence operation directed at Australian opinion. Now, I've, I've seen in the last I suppose in the last eight years, I've witnessed a lot of panic stories about China and the Australian media. There there were headlines about the operation of Chinese students in Australian universities. It was said by one advisor to a conservative government that they represented ethno nationalists. In fact, with 130,000 Chinese students in our universities, there are only four incidents that anyone could point to which represented anything, even as minor as Chinese students, disagreeing with a lecturer about the way he had spoken of Taiwan or China's borders. Uh, yeah, Chinese students en- ended up being greatly disadvantaged by an attempt in the media to beat up a threat represented by Chinese students. I, I look very carefully at this. There's just no data that supported this panic. And I-, I could give 10 other examples. And I think it goes back to a deep-seated Australian apprehension about Asia. I wouldn't say racist, not remotely, but there is the history of white Australia. And even though Australia is quite strikingly an Asian nation, any visitor to an Australian city will see this with with huge Chinese, Indian, Indo-Chinese populations uh, now more and more prominent in the life of the country. There is still a bit of residual fear of the other, And it's not hard to have got some resonance for an anti-Chinese message in conservative circles, conservative media, and so on.
0: I see, Bob. I think you were referring to Peter Dutton when you spoke about an Australian Defence Minister just now, and uh, you also brought up the issue of Taiwan. Now, Mr. Dutton said not too long ago that it was inconceivable that Australia will not be there if the US went to war with China. Now. There's not much strategic ambiguity in that uh, statement from uh, what I can see. And Dutton was a liberal, but now your party, Labour, is in power, and the tone does not seem to have changed so much. Why is that so? And does this indicate bipartisan support for the positions that you're taking on China and the move to the West?
1: Well, Taiwan is a very important issue, and what Dutton said, it's inconceivable that Australia wouldn't be there with America, is utterly at odds with the Australian diplomatic tradition on Taiwan. Utterly at odds with it. The Australian position has been strategic ambiguity, never saying that ANZUS, our treaty with America, applies to Taiwan Straits, leaving that ambiguous or even ruling it out. Uh, that is being the Australian position. And I've got a different view of the, the new government in Australia because Penny Wong, the foreign minister, has been at pains to say, even during the provocation of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, that Australia adheres to strategic ambiguity. It's not for us to support what the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Washington does. We urge both sides not to be provocative, which was a message that we considered the Pelosi visit something of a provocation. And what's striking to me is that since the change of government, Peter Dutton, who now leads the opposition and his spokespeople, have been at pains to cleave to the same diplomatic language, rather almost as if they still feel the loss of Chinese background votes in the last election. So I think think it's fair to say Australia has been a lot more restrained than President Biden in comments on Taiwan. It's been a return to a traditional Australian position that we acknowledge China's claim that Taiwan is uh, a province of China, but we're very careful to urge no resort to force in the, in the pursuit of reunification. Now, I, I feel pretty comfortable that the Albanese government adheres to this, but, but further, that the, the conservative parties now in opposition appear to have learnt their lesson and, and sound a lot more diplomatic.
0: Uh, In in what way have they appeared to learn the lesson?
1: Well, I noticed carefully during the Pelosi visit that they were careful to say they didn't support the visit. Okay. Their defense spokesperson was careful to say he wasn't going to visit Taiwan. They said they wanted to return to the cross-strait status quo, but they actually used the term strategic ambiguity Mm -hmm. and did nothing to depart from the long-established Australian position the position of the Western world, that we acknowledge China's claim that Taiwan is a province of China. I thought I thought it was very interesting, and I thought the, the rebuke they had received in the last federal elections from Chinese background voters who deserted the conservative parties had been learnt, but they also might have reflected a bit more deeply on the, the dangers of a war and the need to talk peaceful resolution of differences over Taiwan to the Americans as much as much as to the Chinese.
0: Now, you recently come out to voice your very deep concern about AUKUS. Could you uh, tell us what are your principal concerns?
1: I think resorting to nuclear submarines is inherently high risk. There are risks in the cost, the delays, the technology, given that we've got no expertise whatsoever at nuclear technology, There are difficulties in terms of the most important foreign policy consideration for Australia, which is our relationship to our neighbourhood, to Southeast Asia. Moreover, there is a sense of Australian sovereignty about the very matters we've been discussing being compromised by us having purchased from America three nuclear subs and having contracted with the UK for the design and the construction of other nuclear submarines with American involvement. Would America have opted to this agreement, giving us three submarines without the expectation that in a showdown over Taiwan, we would be using them on the American side? To do otherwise would be America saying, we're taking three submarines out of our fleet. We're going to be be three submarines down. So there are deep concerns, not only Paul Keating but Malcolm Turnbull, a former conservative prime minister, have added to those concerns. They have, have, have made expressions supporting those concerns, and I think I think there is just there's just a, an element of uneasiness that's beginning to surface mm. in Australia, mm. despite the the unease we have with China's assertiveness, despite the uh, the inherent desire to be close friends with the United States. You can see in Australian public opinion uh, an uneasiness with where this deal might be taking us, and the cost alone i mean the cost is now coming in at more than four times what had been anticipated as being 18 months ago it is a staggering cost and is likely to blow out beyond the 368 billion to 400 billion very
0: likely that certainly is a lot of money Uh, but you've spoke about chinese assertiveness in the face of such assertiveness such as it is does Australia really have a choice? And what could those choices be? I think, I
1: think first of all, to cleave more to the Southeast Asian approach to China, as a former Singaporean foreign minister said, we are used to dealing with China. We've dealt with China for centuries. We are used to dealing with China. And many Southeast Asians are candid about wanting America as a balancing force in the region and i think I think Australia cleaving to that southeast Asian realism, China's rise can be dealt with China's rise is not a threat it's an opportunity and America is most unlikely and has indeed already lost its prime or its dominant role in asia um but we nonetheless want it there as a balancing force i think i think Somewhere in that approach lies a viable Australian approach to the challenges in our region, represented by China's increasing strength and by American anxiety. But the last thing America should be doing is to become over-focused on the DLP words, dominance, leadership, primacy. If America sees the region only through the, the prism, dominance, leadership, primacy, we're always going to be on the brink of conflict, because anything China does can be seen as a threat to America's dominance. America should be very comfortable in the fact the nations of Southeast Asia want an American presence, and that from time to time, some of them, like the Philippines at the present time, are going to be more explicit about it, and others will be less vocal about waving the, the flag for America. And like Thailand, for example, or Myanmar at the present time, more inclined to look to Beijing. But this will ebb and flow. And American anxieties are capable of distorting the cool headedness through which America should be viewing what's happening in Asia.
0: If I'm not mistaken, and uh, if I read your book right, the foreign minister you're speaking of is Georgiou, am I correct?
1: Yeah, uh, Georgiou, yeah. And I haven't seen him for a few years. I look look forward to catching up with him. Um, uh, It was a pleasure to deal with Shan. He was the foreign minister in place. And uh, we've remained friends in the years since.
0: Bob, you've been fairly appreciative of Penny Wong's foreign policy. And uh, if I recall, you recently called it punctilious, which means being careful to the last degree. Why is it then that people like you, and of course, you know, former Prime Minister Paul Keating have felt it necessary to speak out so loudly on on this matter.
1: Paul Keating, as is his character, has been vehement. I've been, been, I hope, rather um, uh, diplomatic throughout, uh, praising Penny Wong for her her choice of language, but encouraging her in a friendly fashion to be even more explicit about, for example, uh, maintaining that Careful traditional diplomatic posture on Taiwan and working towards again, her words, very useful words, stabilizing the relationship with China. On her visit to China, she's rebuilding a relationship which had petered out completely under the previous coalition government, ended up acrimonious, and uh, we were isolated from China and they from us. She's rebuilt that relationship, and I think it's time to more confidently improve it go beyond rebuilding and and look at expanding it, for example, in trade. As China comes to its senses about removing the trade barriers imposed on Australia for our our drift under the previous government into adversarial anti-Chinese rhetoric, it's an opportunity for us to look at improving trade access for Australia to the advantage of China and Chinese access to the Australian market. I think the Chinese are likely to be realists about the fact that Australia is indeed an explicit American ally, that the alliance with the United States is important in how Australia views the world, and that AUKUS and the Quad are unsurprising positions for Australia to take. Um, China makes its own international relationships. Uh, We've seen that dramatically in President Xi Jinping's visit to Russia. It can hardly take umbrage that we choose to be in a a diplomatic partnership with India, Japan, the United States, baptised uh, the Quad, or that given China is building its, its submarine fleet, we've taken the opportunity to update ours and to go for nuclear submarines, which China has plenty of. As it is, on pragmatic grounds, I think what we've done with submarines is the wrong decision, but the Chinese are not entitled to object to us updating our defences. Whether we're doing it in the most appropriate, uh, cost-efficient way is a matter for us to, deba- to debate. But they don't have to consult. They don't consult us about the plans they've taken to modernise uh, the PLA and really can't expect us to defer to them when it comes to our own continental defences.
0: Do You know, you you travel the world. You've been out of office for, for a few years now, but uh, you still have such good friends around the world, people who uh, keep you in confidence of so many things. Do you fear that a conflict with China is looming in Asia? And how soon would that happen?
1: Let me begin with this. On holidays a few months back, I was in the Austrian Military History Museum. There's a small room in which is installed the car in which the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Duchess Sophie, were assassinated by extreme Serbian nationalists on June 28, 1914. And it's a reminder of how something that could be dismissed as an assassination in the Balkans could produce a titanic struggle for mastery in Europe. And so we've got to be alert to that instinct in the human animal to plunge to war, to plunge into hostility in response to a mere local conflict. And all of us have got to be apprehensive that an error of judgment could lead to a war. That would be the first great power conflict since 1945. And of course, by definition, it's a war between nuclear armed powers. If you look for a moment at the documentation out of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, you gasp at Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense's observation. We were this close. He held his finger in his thumb apart like this. He said we were this close to coming to nuclear war. We owe it to the, the honourable memory of, of John F. Kennedy that the President instructed his military chiefs there would be no war when some of them were urging it. So history reminds us of how things can go drastically wrong. And the war talk is worrying. This, this sense that it's inevitable is deeply disturbing. The reminder from human history that human beings can do things that damage their own interests is very real. And I think for Singapore, the other nations of Southeast Asia, the other nations of ASEAN, for Australia and for Japan and for India, it's appropriate to urge caution on China and the United States. The prevailing power, the rising power need to be cautioned by their friends and partners that the loss, and the loss to each of them, would be vast were there to be a dissent into conflict over sovereignty in Taiwan. There's been a robust diplomatic formula, and we should all remind America and China of this: that's preserved the peace in the Taiwan Strait, for 70 years. It's a resilient formula. And it shouldn't be repealed or recast or wound back. It can keep the peace. And wiser heads in the future, I think I'm using the locution of Bung Xiaoping, wiser heads than ours, in the future, decades from now, can find a permanent settlement of what is a dispute capable of manage, being managed by diplomatic language that Kissinger, Nixon, Mao, and Joe and Enlai were able to fiddle on decades ago.
0: The Albanese government recently appointed Kevin Rudd as its ambassador to the United States. Now, what is it trying to do with that appointment? And what do you think is the message Kevin Rudd is carrying to Washington? I think the
1: advantage of the appointment May not be the reason Prime Minister Albanese made it, but the advantage of the appointment is that Australia is sending to Washington someone that members of Congress, advisors to the President, the officials of the State Department, the Defense Department, all those American security agencies would find interesting to hear from. There's a lot of competition for attention in Washington, 190 nations in the world, all seeking to have their voices heard by the the White House and the State Department of the Congress, Kevin Rudd is is bringing value to that table. He's, he's bringing insights into China, which he's continued to carefully study in the years since he's been out of politics. And he's also capable, for example, for example, I haven't discussed this with him, but also capable of, of talking specifically to candidates for the Republican nomination. And talking to them about China policy, and I hope that a Pompeo or a, a Haley or a DeSantis will take time to understand the diplomatic formulae that are preserved peace over Taiwan and the danger of lurching off to say things about Taiwanese independence. If there's any Australian who could engage confidently engage Americans about the dangerous uh, the, the dangerous nature of of, of doing some of the things that occasionally get aired in American politics. It's Kevin Wright.
0: And what if Mr. Albanese turned to you and said, Bob, could you do me a favor? Could you go down to Beijing as Australia's ambassador for a few years? What message would you carry to China?
1: Well, I'm certainly out of the running for any diplomatic posts, Ravi, and my, my Mandarin is non-existent. But But my message to China would be this. You had a pattern of success. It delivered double-digit growth and rising influence in the world. Your diplomacy has failed significantly with South Korea and with India and with the Philippines. China should go back to projecting an image supportive of peace and security. It has lost influence in the world unnecessarily because of an over-assertive tone in its diplomacy. Australia is a friend of China. We want to see China's peaceful aspirations, aspirations for a peaceful wise, achieved because it means there's more intellectual and monetary capital in the world for investment in good. China, for example, can do more to help Africa if it returns to policies that promote economic growth by encouraging its private sector. We can expand the dialogue on climate pandemic management and the avoidance of, of conflict if China's got a good working relationship with the Philippines, South Korea, and with India. Um, I just suspect that China might be ready. There are a few signs of this to hear advice from a friend and partner that its diplomacy needs to be
0: corrected. Well, that's wonderful to hear that uh, tone of optimism coming out of your words. Thank you for that. Now, I want to end this conversation on a slightly lighter note. I think it was in your book that I read about you noticing President Obama's waistline and how careful he was about (laughs) his diet. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think uh, you said that you're fairly sure that he would leave office with the same uh, waist size that he entered it. Now, could we not say the same of you as well, uh, Bob?
1: No, I, I enjoy bread too much and curries too much. That's the difficulty. When I sat next to Obama, while he was eating, we were all eating during a banquet in the Peterhof Palace, chaired by Vladimir Putin at the G20 in September uh, 2013. I noticed, just looking out of the corner of my eye, that anything that had fat or sugar in it, he was carefully tearing away with his knife to the side. I thought he must have had a a mid-afternoon snack to maintain such discipline as, as the discussions went on beyond midnight. I, uh, no you, you and I have spoken about uh, traveling in Europe, and I find I, I have not got the willpower to resist uh, the German and the, the Italian bread, I am afraid
0: but I, I must say that uh, you you look pretty fit all the same, and uh, it, it's nice to see you looking so good and on that note, Mr. Bob Carr, let me thank you ever so much for appearing and speaking of Asia
1: been my pleasure, my great esteem, as you know, for uh, Singapore and uh, its people and its government. And uh, my desire that we might be together before too long uh, to have a curry, a wonderful Singaporean curry.
0: We, we look forward to having you back on this island, Mr. Carr.
1: Uh, my pleasure. It will be the first <laughs> opportunity. Thank
0: you, Robbie. Wonderful. That was a podcast by The Straits Times.